Well, welcome to Formation. Uh, this is the first uh, session in a new series called Stairway to Heaven. Um, before we begin, you should probably uh, you can probably already tell that this sounds a little bit different to our normal podcast. Uh, our live recording on the night for this particular session didn't actually, uh, we had a few technical issues, let's say that. Uh, so this is uh, me, Michael Frost, recording from uh, my home uh, situation. Uh, so that'll be why it sounds a little different. Uh, obviously that means we won't have kind of the group, in, group interaction and conversation and stuff as a part of this particular session. But I still really wanted to give a summary of what we are talking about here uh, so that the rest of the series then kind of makes sense and flows on from here. Um, so... This series, Stairway to Heaven, is really an attempt to look at some of the big ideas that have sat within the Christian imagination in relation to ideas of heaven and hell and judgment and end times and all sorts of interesting speculative uh, concepts and and theories. Uh, There's been a lot done with some of this in the Christian tradition and a lot of it, in my opinion, has been unhelpful and unhealthy and taken us away from so much of what really the message of uh, the Christian story and the story of Jesus was supposed to be taking us into. Uh, so we're going to tackle some pretty big ideas. Uh, we're going to start in this particular session by talking about uh, a theology of heaven. And then uh, next time we're going to talk a bit more about hell. And that's obviously a, a contested and controversial idea. And, and so what we want to do there is is unpack what might be really going on in the biblical language about heaven and hell. And maybe it's not what we thought, or at least what some of us have thought or projected. Uh, And then that'll take us towards some of the way in which Christian speculation about the end times has has misinterpreted and misunderstood, really, uh, big portions of Christian uh, scripture and uh, taking Christians out of the world rather than into it. Um, So that's kind of what we're wanting to talk about across the uh, course of this particular series. And so we're starting in this uh, session here with with the discussion about heaven. And um, heaven immediately brings all sorts of things to mind for people. One of the things even with notions of like heaven and hell is that as soon as we say the word, all sorts of ideas come rushing to the surface of our mind. And so then when we see the word and we read the word, we hear the word heaven, uh, all of those layers of meaning that we've already picked up from either our experience within church or the wider Western culture in which we live, which has picked up sort of versions of a, of a vision of heaven from, from Christianity. Uh, all of those layers of meaning um, flood our minds when we hear that term, and it can be very difficult to peel back those layers and ask ourselves what might be really going on in some of these texts uh, that we see in Scripture. So that's one of the reasons why it's quite difficult to talk about. Another reason is if we're going to start talking about life after death, which, as we'll see, is not always what we're talking about when we talk about heaven. Uh, but even if we were going to start talking about life after death, of course we're speculating, right? Because in the, in the sense that, well, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're alive. Uh, that's my guess. And so am I, which means that uh, we're dealing with stuff that, that in a sense, we are, we are speculating. Even if we have scriptures that give us some suggestion of what there is going forward, um, we're still dealing in, in realms beyond our capacity, if you like. Um, so I don't know what you think of when you think of the word. I don't know what you think of pearly gates and clouds and wings and an old white, old white man playing God up there with his son who's cruising around somewhere who seems a bit more chilled out. Uh, maybe it's mansions and gold-paved streets, or maybe it's, I don't know, an endless summer. Uh, 
and uh, maybe it's you're able to fly. I'm not sure what comes to mind. Um, all of these images that swirl around in the popular imagination when it comes to language of heaven. Um, in Christianity, I guess, uh, that's where we'll start. And that, well, that's kind of our vibe, isn't it? Um, heaven and the language of heaven is often thought of and, and, and used in reference to this place where Christians in particular go after they've died. Uh, so Christians get their name written in the book of life, so that's good. And then uh, get to enter into some kind of eternal paradise with God and end this life of you know singing hill songs around the throne. Um, now, that sounds really beautiful to many of us, to many people, it certainly did to me growing up. Sometimes you run into a little bit of ethical problems around sort of who gets there and who doesn't, and, and we'll deal a little bit more with that next time in terms of, it's kind of like, hey, how great can it be if also uh, heaps of the people I know are sort of uh, are not there? Um, so, so sometimes this language of heaven uh, with a particular Christian version, which excludes probably the majority of the population from getting there, then filters across into a wider Western culture, cultural understanding of heaven, which is maybe uh, still that there's this good place you go when you die, but that maybe it's just generally for for sort of average people and up, you know, the real bad people maybe don't get to go there, you know, the Hitlers of this world. Um, but goodish people kind of go, you know, uh, maybe average, maybe even slightly lower than average and upwards. Let's not set the bar too high. Generally speaking, that'll be nice. Uh, just not the real bad ones. That, you know, I think is probably the way a lot of people think about heaven, maybe who are either on the edges of the Christian church or uh, not not within the Christian tradition. But that has its own kind of ethical problems because then you've still got to decide, well, what's the bar for how bad you have to be before you end up with, with wherever Hitler is, you know? Uh, so that's a problem at all uh, as well. And so in some sense, uh, what... You know, theology of heaven and hell has done is actually create real uh, tribalism and real sets of exclusion amongst certain religious uh, traditions and Christianity. Uh, and and in the end, I think a lot of people's reaction is, well, let's just give up on this idea at all uh, completely, you know, uh, and that'll solve all the problems. So John Lennon's famous song, you know, imagine there's no heaven, uh, that'll fix our problems of division in the world because we'll stop arguing and fighting over who's right about the afterlife and we can just get on and 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 love each other and I kind of sympathize with that sentiment in this in the sense when you look at the way in which language of heaven and hell has been used to to essentially um, judge and ostracize people um, so that's so there's a few problems we're bumping into here uh, one of the others is that you know because heaven is out there somewhere a way up someplace else then Christianity can be a, a bit of an escape plan you know uh, got my ticket on the train to wherever, um, you have that kind of language. I think Billy Graham was really, you know, famous for it. Uh, sort of that this uh, um, heaven is my home, and I'm just sort of passing through this world. You know, I'm, I'm passing through here on my way to my true home. Uh, and I understand, in to some respect, the appeal of that as well. And yet, what it's led to, in many respects, is a real lack of concern for issues of, of social justice or for issues of uh, social concern in society. It's led to a disregard for the environment and the way we might look after our common home. Uh, because really, at the end of the day, if it all comes down to the, the end game of all of this is getting people into heaven at the end, then none of that stuff really matters in comparison with, with saving souls. Um, so 
having said all of that, one of the things I was, one of the things I want to do is is then go back to the scripture and, and have a think about the concept of the language of heaven in the scriptures and see if we can see something else that might be going on here in the text. So that's the idea. Um, so one one place to begin, if you like, uh, when you look at the Bible, is the beginning in Genesis. And if you think about the nation of Israel and it's kind of framing mythic, mythic narratives, then then Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, uh, the, those very early passages in Genesis, really stand as these kind of mythical tellings of, of what matters and what is meaning in the world and, and, and who is God and what is this all about. Uh, a lot of those ideas are captured within those early stories of creation. And in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And in that sense and in that kind of language, heavens is pretty much just language for everything that's above uh, the earth is beneath our feet, and the heavens is everything from from the ground up. Really, is the heavens, and so the heaven, you know, language you see through the scriptures of the heavens declare the glory of God. So we're, there, we're talking about the heavens, not as some kind of heavenly realm somewhere else. You know, uh, if you break through the the uh, the cloud barrier and you get to some to heavenly place, but the heavens are essentially just uh, the atmosphere in which we live. Uh, and in the ancient world, they tended to see the sky as a kind of a dome. Uh, structure of some kind and we were suspended you know beneath this dome and the stars are placed in this dome and so the heavens is really everything from from us upwards towards that dome so that's language of the heavens if you like but then there is this more specific language of kind of the the realm in which god uh, dwells or or the realm in which god's will is done and often language that's very similar and and, and later becomes language of heaven is used to describe this kind of uh, state, the state, and the idea very early on in the Jewish story is that heaven and earth are supposed to be united, because earth is supposed to be also the place where God dwells and where God's way of being is lived out by uh, those who are created in God's image and therefore uh, bearing the image of God in the world. And so, uh, what what happens as the story unfolds is that as humans then begin to act in really dehumanizing ways towards one another. Um, and refusing to, to live in a way of this kind of harmony and love toward the other that, that sits at the heart of the story. Uh, then there's this distortion or this disconnect between heaven and earth in that kind of sense. Um, not as in heaven is therefore then some place out there somewhere because God is understood as being in and through all things. But uh, the world as we know it is somehow fractured and God's presence, God's way of being in the world, God's realm, God's kingdom is the language they come to use later, is not present in the way that uh, God desires it to be. And so you have this um, kind of split, splitting if you like, I think within the psyche of the human being uh, and also within this experience, the social experience of human beings living in the world. Um, so that's one thing. So when we start to think about heaven and the realm of heaven, uh, before we start thinking about a place people go when they die or someplace up there somewhere, uh, the first thing that should come to mind for us uh, if we're going to work our way through the scriptural story is that kind of realm or state or, or, or whatever we might call it where God's presence is found and God's way of being is, is, is unfolding. God's will is being done. Some of, the, some of the language sometimes the scripture gives to it. Um, so when we, when we start to then think about Old Testament language for what happens when you die, there's actually not much said at all. So in the Old Testament, uh, there's a lot of ambiguity about eternal destination or about life after death, even if life after death is a thing at all, uh, let alone where you might go when you die. 
Uh, there are some suggestions that we descend into uh, Sheol. That's the Hebrew word that's that's used there. So that uh, which is translated sometimes as the grave, sometimes as uh, the shadowy abode of the dead, if you like, or the uh, descent. So often we talk uh, the talk in the Old Testament about when I die, I descend into Sheol. Um, but there's a real kind of, kind of grayness, a shadowiness, and unknownness to it. Um, so there was no real clear sense that that was some kind of conscious existence. Uh, or even any kind of existence at all. Perhaps it was just that we descend into the grave. And we, you know, the, there's a the the scripture that says, you know, the body returns to the ground from which it came, uh, and so on. So there's this sense of like descending into something. Of course, they live in the ancient world where there are all sorts of um, theories and um, and myths and narratives around the underworld and the the realm of the dead and so on. Uh, the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, didn't have a particularly well-developed idea around a lot of that. It was just this ambiguous descent into Sheol. So uh, what does happen is that there develops this hope that maybe someday God will overcome Sheol somehow. And so some of the prophets begin to sp- and psalmists begin to say, well, maybe God will rescue us from Sheol. So yes, there's this ambiguous descent into the grave or to Sheol. But maybe uh, God... Will somehow redeem us from the grave, so to speak. Um, so there's all of that going on, but none of that has to do with the language of heaven at this point. Um, so if we think about heaven as being the place, the realm where God reigns, if you like, uh, that's not a place where we go when we die. It's not even a place we go far, far away from here. Uh, so you see examples, so like Jacob, for example, in the book of Genesis has this experience where he falls into a dream and he sees a ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven. The idea here is not so much that heaven is up there somewhere far away as much as it is that heaven is quite close, that when Jacob sees in some kind of particular way, he sees uh, that heaven is in fact very near, that God's realm, God's place of being, if you like, um, is, is very close by if we would just see. And so within the Jewish faith, uh, certain sacred spaces and sacred rituals become places, became places that symbolized where heaven and earth would meet. So the tabernacle, for example, when they developed that, when they're in the wilderness, uh, and, the, and the Holy of Holies, which would sit at the center of that, uh, was a place where heaven and earth in some way would, would come together again. Uh, and later on, that became obviously the temple, when the temple was built. Um, And then much later on, when the temple is destroyed, it's actually the Torah itself, the law becomes a place where heaven and earth meet in some kind of way. And so this real devotion and adherence to the the learning and the teaching of the Torah uh, becomes really central to Jewish people for whom that's a place where heaven and earth collide. So in light of all of this then, uh, and we won't retell the whole story here, but uh, as the Jewish people go into exile, as the nation of Israel goes into exile, uh, they begin to develop these expectations about the becoming of a Messiah who would come and rescue Israel, who would reign on the throne of David. Um, they talk about even renewal and this idea of new heavens and new earth and Isaiah's this imagery of lion lying down with the lamb and so on. But nowhere in the Old Testament imagination is that some kind of ethereal city up in the clouds that everybody's going to when we die. It was much more about the Messiah coming and rescuing and restoring the people of God on this earth here and now. And when that day comes, judgment will t- take place and peace and shalom will be brought to the earth and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, would be established. And so heaven and earth would be one again as they were always intended to be. So that's really the future hope 
for the nation of Israel as we head towards the first century in the time of Jesus. Uh, the hope is, won't someone come and rescue us from going to hell when we die so that we can go to heaven when we die? The hope was, will the Messiah come and rescue us from uh, the violence and oppression that is in the world and put things right in the world? And so Isaiah says things like, oh, you know, I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. You know, he will put things right in the world. That's the idea. So by the time we get to the first century and the time of Jesus, you have, uh, you have some Jewish people who do believe in some kind of resurrection and some who don't. So if we think about life after death, the primary hope is for Messiah to come. But then there's also this hope that develops really between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, that perhaps there is going to be some kind of physical or bodily resurrection after we die. Uh, and there's some there's some argument about this in the first century when Jesus is around. So, for example, he gets the Pharisees and Sadducees arguing with each other at one point because uh, the Pharisees believed in a physical resurrection after death and the Sadducees did not. So it's far from a settled issue at this point as to whether or not there is any such thing as life after death. What they are clear on is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a possibility. That's not about where we go when we die primarily as much as it is about... God's kingdom and God's way of being coming and being present with us here on earth. Now, it does appear that Jesus then sides with those who believe in some kind of future physical resurrection as well. So he does uh, make some statements about that in Luke 14, 14 and other places. And obviously then he has a resurrection himself, which seems to be a, an affirmation of resurrection as an idea. And it certainly is for the early Christians who, for whom the resurrection of Jesus stands as the big core um, transforming moment when they say, ah, yes, this resurrection thing really is true. Uh, so all of that to say, I think this kind of background work is really helpful for us so that when we come to read language in which we encounter words like heaven, we recognize they are taking place within a context and we've since then layered all sorts of other meaning on top of those words that sometimes make it hard for us to access what's really being talked about. So if we approach all these passages in the New Testament and we've already got an idea in our mind of heaven as this golden city in the sky that we'll all fly away to one day and we'll all dance in the streets, um, then we obviously, we come every passage we come through, that's what we see. Uh, and sometimes we might miss some things that are in there. I'm not saying you can't see the text that way. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm not the boss of you. But uh, what I'm saying is there might be something else going on in some of these texts that we miss when we when we prioritize that particular version of the language of heaven. We see this a little bit when, say, for example, there's a, there's a teacher who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when I read this verse growing up in, in the church, of course, the question is, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Of course he's asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? But that's not really the question, and it's not really the question Jesus answers. And, he, and, and then at the end of his answer, and talking about, you know, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself, he doesn't say, do this and you'll go to heaven one day. He says, do this and you will live. So there's this idea that eternal life itself is not defined first and foremost by some future location as much as it is by the experiencing of the full depth dimension of life in the present. Um, and the book of John kind of highlights that, where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they might know God and know the one that God has sent. So then there's, there's relational language about eternal life. 
that has to do with coming to know God and God's life in us in some kind of way. So again, it's, I think, a really important set of ideas to kind of grasp when we come to thinking about this language of heaven, of kingdom of heaven, and of eternal life. This is not to say that the Bible has nothing at all to offer us about where or what the future might be and what happens after all that is done. It's just that's not always the primary thing that's being explored, and so sometimes uh, we miss the point. Uh, again, I, I want to emphasize, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. You know, he, he comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you, the kingdom of heaven is even within you at times. Uh, when he starts a sermon, uh, Matthew records his first sermon as being the Sermon on the Mount, you know, this very famous text, and he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he doesn't say, for they'll go to heaven when they die. He says, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are the meek, not because they will you know, get their names in the Lamb's Book of Life and therefore when they, they get to the pearly gates, St. Peter will let them in. It's blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so there's the sense of a very earthy, present reality to this language of kingdom of heaven and what it is that uh, is happening in the story of Jesus, which is... In Jesus, we see uniquely, uh, and Christians would say more than in any of those other instances in the Old Testament, in Jesus, we see this coming together of heaven and earth in this unique and profound way. That's some of what we're talking about when we use language of incarnation or of the divine human Jesus, uh, that somehow heaven and earth have found their way together in this particular story of Jesus, and then we're invited to participate in that kind of reality and to con- and to participate in bringing that to earth. And so... Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, again, the emphasis here is earthy, it's material, it's physical, it's grounded, it's it's God, come and transform this world here and now, and how can I participate in joining with you in that? And Jesus maintains in some kind of way that the best way to participate in doing that is to follow the way of Jesus. Um, right, I hope that's making sense for you so far. Um we are going to, in a couple of sessions time, we are going to talk a bit more about the book of Revelation and what's kind of going on in the book of Revelation, which is a wild book. And if you've ever read it, uh, you're probably confused uh, because most people are, and even the best biblical scholars in the world find chunks of Revelation very difficult to interpret. Um, now, we are going to see, I think, in a, in a couple of sessions time that it's not difficult to interpret because we're all trying to predict the future. It's difficult to interpret because of the fact that we're reading a bunch of imagery that that is really relevant to the time in which it's written and and but but very complex in the way that it's developed anyway we're not we're not going to jump into that too much now but i do want to mention this this little passage that's right towards the end of the book of revelation uh, where it says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth this is in chapter 21 for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea Uh, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So there's a really beautiful image of all things being made new. which actually, if we think about the Old Testament vision of God's renewal we are talking about before, is very much in tune with that. It's a vision of what the kingdom of God looks like when God is fully among us. Uh, and it's much less of us going up to heaven in the clouds and much more of a God dwelling coming to be with us on an earth that is made new. 
Um, I mean, that last line in that passage is really critical there. The old order of things has passed away. So this is not a God burning up the earth type situation, but somehow God transforming uh, this world into something beautiful and something new. It's very similar to the kind of language that the Apostle Paul uses for what happens to us when we encounter or tune in or access or come alive to uh, the presence of the Spirit uh, and the way of Jesus Christ within us. When he, talks, he says, you know, I'm a new creation. Uh, old things have passed away. All things have been made new. Uh, and so that same language that Paul uses for the person when we experience or encounter the divine God through the story of Jesus is the language that the writer of John's revelation uses to describe what will happen to all things, to the cosmos, to the earth that we live on. Um, and in fact, that's that's what is suggested. N.T. Wright says that one of the big features of New Testament theology is that what happens to Jesus happens to the whole world. That the resurrection of Jesus is seen as the beginning of some kind of transformation that ultimately will overtake, uh, will overcome or overwhelm in a beautiful and, and life-giving way all things that will be made new. Yeah, and so you get right at the beginning of the book of Revelation that phrase from Jesus, Behold, I am making all things new. Um, so I think now as, we, as this discussion unfolds, we can start to see a little bit of what's going on in the language of heaven when we read it in scriptures. Um, the idea that our spirits or our, so the non-physical part of us floats off to the sky somewhere uh, to be with God in the clouds is a, is a really, I guess we could say it's, a, it's an idea shaped by Platonic philosophy, you know, Plato, the, the, the great Greek philosopher who, who saw the world as divided into spirit and matter, and matter was really bad and spirit was good, uh, physicality was, was kind of evil and corrupt, um, and so when you view the world that way, it's very easy to see the idea of heaven as being this non-physical place somewhere else. But the idea that's presented to us in the scriptures is one of a transformed physical earthy life here in the present. And then when we look forward in the New Testament to what life beyond this might be, there's this, there's this idea that, yes, this does matter. This is moving somewhere. This is going somewhere. And that somehow, and this is where you know we have to appeal to mystery, and I'm not quite sure what, what even is meant by this, really, uh, somehow as we move into uh, God's beautiful future for this world, God will transform and make new all things. And there's this hope deep in the heart of the Christian text that we will get to be a part of that in some way and experience, again, some kind of physical, bodily, earthy resurrection life, whatever that means. Um, this kind of earthiness is, in fact, right at the center of the gospel because the whole gospel story is God coming present in some kind of unique and mysterious way in the story of Jesus. This is the language, again, of incarnation, of God taking up flesh and blood. Um, you know, the gospel is not just about the cross. It's about what stands on either side of the cross. It's the incarnation and the resurrection, both of which are about the redemption or the and, and the uh, vivifying of humanness itself. Um, and so we look forward in some way, somehow, to all of creation. Uh, and Paul says all of creation in some way anticipates or expect groans with the expectation of waiting for this kind of this renewal that is to come. Uh, 
And again, to use Isaiah's language, the lion lies down with the lamb. Or to use John's revelation language, these tears are wiped away. There's no longer any sea. And sea in the ancient Near Eastern uh, mind is an image of chaos and of danger, you know. So uh, there's still a sense of mystery to all of this. The images aren't clear. Uh, they're speculative. Uh, what the New Testament writers do seem to have a sense of is that because they've encountered Jesus in the particular way that they claim to have, they feel like that even in the face of overwhelming violence and empire and oppression, even in the face of death itself, somehow there is, there is a deep and profound hope that comes through the story of Jesus that says, God is still taking this somewhere beautiful, and even if you and even death itself is not strong enough in the end to overcome the great and beautiful love of God. Um, ultimately, what this means is that heaven isn't really about a place out there, but it's about what we might call shalom, or it's about relationship with God and with self and with others and creation. And so, in that sense, the lives we live here and now are about seeing the kingdom of heaven come. Uh, the relationships we build, the the kind of the creativity we invest into, the art we produce, the songs we write, uh, the families we build, the relationships we sow into, the you know all of that stuff uh, is giving shape to uh, the world in which we live in a way that hopefully is more and more in tune with God's way of being in the world, uh, which is really then that language of kingdom of heaven. It's a language of heaven coming to earth. Um, The Bible starts with the statement that when God creates, uh, God calls it very good. And at no point in the story does God change his mind about the goodness of that which he has made. And so the story is not one of God burning up the world and most of the people in it and whisking away the elect, those who manage to pray the, the prayer and, and, and get their names in the right book. She'll be whisked away up into the clouds somewhere and then live uh, forever somewhere else while you know everybody else suffers. Uh, instead, it's this movement towards renewal, towards a making of all things new, towards a coming of kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, to earth now as it was always meant to be in some kind of way, to participate in that, to refuse ways of violence and oppression and empire and manipulation and control um, and dehumanization, and instead to embrace self-giving love and grace and reconciliation and forgiveness and movements of peace and so on. So this is not just about do I secure my future, this is about how do I live here and now in the present. Uh, so that's a bit of what we want to say about heaven. I hope that makes sense in some kind of way. I feel like I've done a big like rant because without everyone interrupting me or, or me interrupting myself uh, with cute quips and asides and hilarious jokes that I obviously make to the group when we do this live. Uh, I've just powered through a bunch of this, so I hope it's made some kind of sense. Um, we are going to pick up the next uh, session or episode where we're going to be looking at language of hell, because obviously as soon as we start talking about heaven like this, then that brings up a whole lot of, well, okay, wait, wait, what? Uh, so if, um, if God is renewing all things, then... Uh, what is all this language of hell about, and um, and what does judgment have to do with this, and, and is that a good thing or a bad thing, and what does it mean about God, and is God a monster, or is God actually okay, and how do we put all this together? So 
the next session, we're going to explore some of that, which I think will be interesting. All right. Uh, see you next time. Bye.